We're going to turn for our reading this evening back to Judges and chapter 11. Judges and chapter 11. And we'll commence to read from verse 29. Judges 11 verse 29. Picking up again on the work of Jephthah as a judge in Israel. Judges 11 verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he defeated them from Aroer as far as Minith, twenty cities and to Abel Karamin with a very great slaughter thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing and she was his only child beside her he had neither son nor daughter and it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And so it was at the end of the two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Amen. May God add his own blessing for that reading of his own precious word. Take a deep breath, David. <laughs> We shouldn't ignore scripture just because it's difficult. So we can have a look tonight at Jephthah's vow and uh, some of the issues that have been raised concerning it. So just remind ourselves, the action now takes place in near Ramoth Gilead. Uh, Jephthah, as we know, was a Gileadite living in Mizpah. And there we can see the other uh, maps there. Uh, Jephthah is uh, identified there just north, uh, just south rather of Gilead. Also we're told by the uh, 
uh, theologians and others that this was probably about the same time that Samson was engaging the Philistines down there in the southwest of the country. And we said this at the beginning, I think, of the series that not all these um, judges ruled or were in action necessarily chronologically or ruling over the whole area of the nation of Israel, but some were localised, as you see there, the uh, lands adjoining uh, Palestine. There were several tribes, Ammon, Moab, the Philistines, uh, the Edomites there right in the south. And so we just pick these things up as the people of Israel are troubled because of their disobedience from time to time. I think we noted at the beginning that uh, 12 times in this book the Lord had to deliver them from their enemies that had been brought upon them by him, of course, in judgment upon them. So, we looked last time briefly, just to recap, we looked at Genesis chapter, uh, sorry, Judges chapter 10, verses 6 to 18, and there we read, didn't we, that uh, Israel abandoned God again and again. Israel was oppressed again, this time by the Ammonites for 18 years. Israel again beseeched the Lord for deliverance. Again, God has to chastise the people of Israel for their rebellion against him. And again, God shows mercy. And the scriptures tell us, we read that earlier, uh, when we started um, Jephthah the last time, that the scripture records in his soul, that's God's soul, who could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So again, he delivers them. And for their deliverance, he raises up this Gileadite, this man called Jephthah, who we learned was hounded out of his family home. He moved north to the land of Tob, and there he led a band of, were they brigands or were they uh, mercenaries? We don't quite know. Uh, we don't quite know whether they were going around causing mischief or whether they were going around defending, in a sense, outlying settlements and cities from the invading Ammonites. So we called him last time the second most controversial of the judges. And we come this evening to consider uh, the controversy concerning uh, Jephthah. Jephthah and his vow. Well, what was his vow? Well, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, right at the beginning, we can say that uh, perhaps in principle, was it right but for Jephthah to even make this vow. He was indeed seeking the Lord's blessing and in so doing was he dis displaying a sort of lack of belief in the fact that despite the evidence of all the times before that we've studied in the book of Judges, God had delivered Israel from their oppressors. Was he showing, in this case, a marked lack of faith a marked lack of obedience uh, or was he just trying to ensure and secure the victory that uh, 
he saw Israel needed at that time. Well, as we get into this, we shall see the arguments perhaps for and against the uh, outcome of this vow. But before we do, the vow, let's just have a quick think about what vows were and how the scriptures explains them to us. You see, vows in the scriptures were offerings, as we know, the Israelites pledged to God to thank him for his blessings or to thank him for his help. And of course, we read also that vows were strictly voluntary, but of course, once they were made, their fulfilment became obligatory. You couldn't make a vow, a holy vow in that case, and then turn aside from it. However, I understood the weakness of men. And we understand also from the scriptures that whatever a person gave to God as a vow became holy, or in that case, set apart, is another word the scripture uses. Uh, it was separated. It could not be given and then taken back. It belonged to God. And obviously, this total consecration made vow-making, in many ways, a very, very serious proposition. But, Leviticus 27, I don't know if you want to turn to Leviticus 27, we won't go into it in great detail. But Leviticus 27 deals with vow-making and uh, has some interesting aspects here that we might just uh, look at very briefly. Leviticus 27. God, in some ways, understands the weakness of men, perhaps, in making vows, and he provides this sort of tariff that if you make a vow, and in many ways if you want to redeem that vow, he gives a sort of tariff that you may pay, make a payment uh, to be redeemed from that vow. And if you were to look at it, and we have this nice little table here provided in his book by Dale Ralph Davis, there is this little table here of what you had to pay to redeem the vow, uh, this is particularly in the case where persons, individuals, uh, have been set aside uh, for a vow for service and for dedication or consecration to the Lord. So you can see there that infants, of course, in many ways were very cheap. But we do know that when Hannah made her vow, of course, she didn't uh, redeem it in any way. Samuel was completely... Uh, dedicated to the service of the God of God and she completed and fulfilled her vow literally. But for others perhaps making vows and then finding perhaps God provided here for them to be uh, settled by means of a payment. And you see the older that people get up to the age of 60, the price of men is very, very expensive. I don't think the equality lobby today would agree, agree very much with uh, the standards here. Women between 20 and 60 will only cost 20, 30 shekels, but men cost 50. The interesting principle that's set out there, but we don't have time to go into that tonight. And then the older you get and the weaker you get, you're worth less. So uh, it's an interesting thing. Be careful who you vow to serve the Lord. But the vows regarding the consecration of animals 
uh, also of possessions and the consecration of land, it was given to the priest of the authority uh, to be valued. Also, if at a later date you want to buy them, 20% uh, was added to the value that you had to pay because you were repurchasing in some ways. And this is all there in Le Leviticus chapter 27 in many ways, doesn't it? It demonstrates the kindness and the forbearance of God in, in, in some ways in making a way of escape. Well, perhaps vows that have been made impetuously, vows that have been made too quickly without too much serious thought. And so God provides a way of escape there's that wonderful verse in the New Testament, is there? There's no temptation taking you, uh, that, uh, but God will provide a way of escape. So here we have God's help, God's remedy uh, for weak and simple men in many ways. So we get back to the controversy itself. Jephthah, it seems, and we read that today, Jephthah was determined to keep his vow. The picture we have, perhaps, as we, over, as we look over it, Jephthah was a godly man. He would have been well versed, perhaps, in the scriptures as they, such as they existed. He would have known, and as was the case, he would have been taught father to son, son to father, down the generations. He would have been taught uh, of the need to worship God. He would have been taught of the need to keep God's rules and regulations and so it's important that we understand here and he says to his wife uh, I've given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it so the big question is did Jephthah literally sacrifice his daughter or did he commit her into the service of the Lord did he set her apart uh, as the scriptures says elsewhere was she set apart uh, for the work of the Lord and it's interesting that um, I won't go into it now but the words used in Israel for burnt offering can also mean set apart made open, away so it's interesting to uh, consider these thoughts and then we see the problem you see human sacrifice was really strictly forbidden. It is an abomination to God. And if you want to just turn to reinforce those thoughts, back to Deuteronomy 12 and verses um, 29. This is Moses speaking to the people. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, speaking of the children of Israel going into the promised land and you displace them and dwell in their land take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you and that you do not inquire after their God saying how did these nations serve their God I also will do likewise this was the temptation wasn't it for the people of Israel as they went into the promised land and they saw what happens in the nations around and they might be tempted to be absorbed into the worship, into the practices of the evil nations. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. 
God foresees that they might want to adopt these forms of worship but still addressing their worship to Almighty God. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So there is Deuteronomy, there is the first of the prohibitions. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy, just a few chapters later, in chapter 18, we look at verse 9. When you come in, again it's repeated here, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to the Tuesdays and the diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. There are other texts there, some in Leviticus 18, 21, and 20 verses 2 to 5. All forbid and describe such actions as abomination to the Lord. So, here is the particular problem. And the arguments now, I must, I must confess that um, I've been reading the commentaries. I have a commentary from the 19th century in the late 1800s, uh, Dr. Alfred Edersheim. I have a commentary uh, from the 20th century, Dr. Leon Wood. Some of you may not know him. He was the uh, Dean and Professor of Old Testament at the Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary back in the 1950s and in those days it was one of the most foremost reformed of the American uh, seminary colleges. It's now called Cornerstone University so I'm not quite sure what's happened to it in that time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they still take the reformed, the pure reformed position. Uh, and then I have a commentary, of course, we've talked about him, Dalras Davis, in the early 21st century. And it's interesting to say, as the uh, book of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. And as you read all the commentators, you find they bring up the same, in many ways, the same arguments, both for and again. The earlier two, uh, from Alfred Edersheim and Dr. Leon Wood, tend, I think, although they don't actually say outright, they tend to hold the view that he offered her for temple service as a virgin. Dalrov Davis, although he doesn't say as much, but you infer from his style and the emphasis in his writing that he believes it was a literal sacrifice. I can't say that definitely, but he poses the question, why not? If it says it in scripture, why not? So it's interesting. So just let's have a look in this particular time. The arguments for actual 
sacrifice. The principle in scripture, and we've read that, that an oath made to the Lord is inviolable. It should be something that is set apart, it was holy, it's special to the Lord, and one should complete the vow. Uh, secondly, literally, a burnt offering, as we understand it, the plain meaning means involving the sacrifice of life, or what, as I said earlier, the words can mean, uh, again, uh, opening the way, or indeed creating an opening and so we have to take that if we take it literally on the surface then it means the sacrifice of the life a vow to God takes precedence over all else including human life we might uh, contrast that perhaps with uh, Abraham and Isaac on the mountain there that God delivered Abraham uh, from his requirement to sacrifice his son but there we go Abraham was willing to be obedient to God Abraham was willing to trust his God and God delivers him in many senses from that responsibility and again God is sovereign over human life he takes it, he spares it if he wishes so those are the principal arguments put forward for in many ways the literal sacrifice of his daughter now against those Jephthah could have offered his daughter as a living sacrifice she would be set apart for service in the temple and she would be not necessarily condemned to a life of uh, celibacy uh, but Paul says present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy unto the Lord and perhaps this was at the back of Jephthah's mind when he was considering, uh, as he considered this oath. A living sacrifice of perpetual virginity was of course a tremendous sacrifice in the Jewish context of that day. His daughter would not therefore be able to be up, bring up children uh, to continue her father's lineage. Remember he had no sons uh, to continue his name and it was such a, an important position, wasn't it? Uh, poor Abraham had absolutely no sons. And the people of Egypt laughed at him, didn't they? Uh, he would eventually go on to father sons and daughters. But we understand that it was such an important issue. And therefore that in a sense adds to the poignancy of the vow made and the desire to keep that vow. Jephthah, as we've seen, acts as a man of honour and great faith in many ways by not going back on his vow. So, when his daughter went out to weep for two months, she did not, the scripture doesn't say this, does it? She went out not to mourn for her impending death, rather she went out and bewailed her virginity. She was to be set aside as a, in that sense as a tabernacle maiden to serve the Lord and again we read that uh, at the end of that situation that she knew no man so she knew no man indicates that she began a life of perpetual virginity there would be no family there would be no name for Jephthah 
uh, to preserve his history. So those are the arguments against, or principally anyway, the arguments against actual sacrifice and that she was set aside to serve in the temple. Question now, how could God allow Jephthah to sacrifice his daughter in contravention of God's own laws and then list Jephthah in the list of the heroes of faith? Because he's listed there in Hebrews 11, verse 32. This is a question, isn't it? How could God allow Jephthah to break God's holy laws, to perform an abomination in God's own sight, and then commend him in the list of the heroes of faith? We don't have time to go into all that in great detail, but I think it's a question that's easily um, answered in our own hearts and minds may take a little working out but I think uh, it's something we should consider because in many ways we're all confronted with these difficult situations from time to time we're all confronted perhaps in a situation what shall I do and will it please the Lord what shall I do here what shall I do there and in many ways I think has often been said when considering this passage we should be very very careful about making promises even vows uh, to the Lord. So, just briefly now, to fully appreciate the figure of Jephthah, we should perhaps consider some of the similarities. We've looked at chapter 10 and we've looked at chapter 11. And there are uh, some similarities that help us to understand Jephthah's character, his personality and his actions. The parallels between the dealings of Israel with Yahweh and the Gilead people's dealings with Jephthah, in many ways, because they're in adjoining chapters, they seem far too close, in many ways, to be accidental. Their comparison shows that there are some similarities. I just want to consider some of these as we come to a close examine the details and here again we have another nice neat little chart provided by Dale Ralph Davis. There are several stages which we go through now as the people deal with Almighty God, with Yahweh, there's rejection, distress, repentance, objection, appeal and agreement and there are the various verses in the two chapters uh, that contrast or compare one with the other. So just briefly, we can now look perhaps individually. There's this, the topic of rejection. You see, the people of Israel rejected God, didn't they? Children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So there's the rejection of the people of Israel of Almighty God. And then in chapter 11, we find that Jephthah himself was rejected by his family and also by the people of Gilead. Now Jephthah was a mighty man of valour and we read through those there. And then Jephthah fled from his brother. He was rejected, he was thrown out. He was disregarded and dwelt in the land of Tob. So we move from rejection to distress. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them in 
to the hands of the Philistines, probably a reference there to what Samson was doing in the southern southwest, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Hammon. And they harassed and oppressed Israel for 18 years. This is the distress brought upon the people of Israel. Turn over to chapter 11 and again the same thought is repeated in the context of Jephthah now. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And again Israel here is in distress. Um, doesn't appear that Jephthah's involved in that distress. He's moved north uh, and it's about to change for him. And so there's uh, repentance. And again, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. And this is them coming back again as they do every time and time again in repentance. Was it saving repentance? Again, we repeat this problem because we know that as time passes, once the judge in this case, Jephthah passes from the scene that the people of Israel return to their idol worship. And so there's repentance. And then in the smaller context, uh, in the matter of Jephthah and the elders of Gilead, the elders have to come repenting to Jephthah confessing that they've dealt badly with him and they want him now here's an interesting one objection and the Lord said to the children of Israel oh my God and the Lord said when the people came in repentance the Lord answered them saying did I not deliver you from the Egyptians go and cry to the gods you have worshipped in order that they may deliver you what a challenge Go on, I've had enough. Go and find these gods that you want to worship and see if they deliver them, deliver you. And again, as we cross over to chapter 11, uh, this is the same almost response that uh, Jephthah gives to the elders of Gilead. He says, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? It's uh, amazing, the comparisons here. What happens in chapter 10 is repeated more or less in an individual sense by Jephthah as he takes his position. And then we have the appeal made to the people, made by the people of Israel to Almighty God. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we'll sin, do to us whatever seems best to you. Only, only deliver us. And again, in the other situation the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah this is why we have turned again to you now be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead and they appealed to Jephthah come and be head over us he had a reputation we looked last time had a reputation of being a man of war a military man and they were turned to seek him and we read later don't we? this is perhaps Another argument uh, for the case of uh, his daughter uh, being committed to tabernacle service. In verse 29, we read about Jephthah that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. You have to ask, would a man uh, 
under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord and this was uh, uh, most important and most um, sacred if you like a position that he finds himself in we read over and over again don't we each time a judge comes to the poor to deliver them that they are found in the spirit uh, and under the influence of the spirit and so then Jephthah uh, we find now agreement the Lord agrees because his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel the Lord agrees he acquiesces in their distress he acquiesces in their repentance and he hears their appeal and these are touching words aren't they they display to us a God of real sincere everlasting mercy to those he set aside for himself and it is here again for Jephthah if you take me back home the Lord delivers them to me I shall be your head you will fulfill and complete your promise then Jephthah went with the oaths of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over him just in many ways a small illustration of how all scripture comes together how all scripture reflects in one event in another event and of course as we look at the overall picture of all the judges we have this wonderful example don't we of Jesus Christ himself coming to deliver his people the people that God has set aside I've been looking briefly at the Bible class lesson for this coming Sunday morning uh, we're looking at the John Calvin tulip and it's my uh, responsibility to teach unconditional election um, to the teenagers. But it is completely unconditional, isn't it? We see throughout Judges, God unconditionally delivers his people. What wonderful truths this is. What wonderful picture and examples we have in the Old Testament through the undying commitment of Almighty God to his people through these days he constantly delivers them and declares in many ways doesn't he his power to the nations around that they should in fact turn from their evil ways with final analysis by an all powerful everlasting God well we could have and I don't have time we could have looked at the final event there concerning um, Jephthah uh, the differences between him and the situation with the Ephraimites but uh, I'm going to leave you to read that chapter 12 and study that one next time we'll come and look at the most controversial of all the judges and again it's amazing as we look at Samson how he too despite his uh, terrible lifestyle lack of morals his lustful lifestyle and yet he's still included in the list of heroes it uh, gives us hope doesn't it that considering what we are that God still loves us and will take us to be with himself only through the work of our saviour the Lord Jesus Christ well 